electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. On today's episode, tech firms like Microsoft, PayPal, Google, eBay, they've laid off thousands while doubling down on AI. Big technology founder Alex Kantrowitz says the reasoning is not what you think. This isn't like a moment where you're starting to see AI replace engineers at Google. Absolutely not. It's more about who can build the new generation of AI technology for us. Let's make room for them, give them room to run. And Starbucks stock jumping, even though it missed expectations in its first quarter. The CFO, Rachel Ruggieri, talks cold drinks, all-day sweets, and global growth plans for the brand. Certainly there were some headwinds, and specifically in our international market, but despite that, we opened 10% of our net new store growth came in our international market. But first, Elon Musk's $56 billion pay plan ruled void, and the race for president is costing Wall Street's elite. Billionaires are burning $100 bills at the altar of Nikki Haley. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Wednesday, January 31st, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Mike Santoli along with Contessa Brewer and Robert Frank. Joe, Becky and Andrew are off today. A Delaware judge struck down Elon Musk's $55 billion pay package at Tesla after a shareholder challenged it as excessive. You think? Musk has Tesla holdings worth billions in the form of stock options that have vested over the past few years as Tesla hit its performance targets. But... Regulatory filings show he hasn't exercised any of the options now following the court challenge. Musk has repeatedly urged Tesla's board to arrange another stock award years after he sold a chunk of shares of Tesla to buy Twitter. He's recently been pushing for a bigger stake in Tesla to maintain control of the company and push further into AI. This was not surprising for those who look at governance because of his relationships with the board. When your brother's on the board, that could be a conflict of interest. But when they awarded this, Tesla market cap was $60 billion. The idea that it could ever get to 650 at the time, many people thought Tesla was a mirage, it was losing money. So, you, you know, when you look at the economics, yeah, $55 billion compared to any other CEO is outrageous. Yeah. But no other stock that I know of uh, ha- has really done that in that period of time. Although what the plaintiff argued was not that it not just that it was outrageous, it was that they had downplayed the likelihood of hitting the targets that would award him those particular stock awards. Right. And that the company's own projections showed that they were likely to do it even as Elon Musk and others were talking down the likelihood of doing that. And so as, as the shareholder said, I was misled into voting for it and approving that as were all the other shareholders. That's question one. And then I, I, I really question what happens with the board governance from from here on out because we know that there are some boards that have very much followed the instructions of their ceo chairman in some cases founder 
and, and have just done the bidding of whoever is holding that top job. And so will we start to see more uh, restraint when it comes to that? I mean, the judge, you know, was pretty critical of just the board structure and just right. essentially saying this was not an arm's length right. decision. But uh, yeah. it, it's, it's hard to know to me how applicable it is to a lot of other companies because you don't always have those kind of market cap targets that are really that's where the incentives are, are linked. Right. Right. No, Tessa, you're right. It's not the dollar amount. Who's to say what's too much, yeah. right? It's the process here. The process by which they went through the estimates and the process of are these board members really arm's length and did Elon have any direct control or indirect control over the process, which she said she did. He insists he didn't. Yeah, and also after this, Elon Musk tweeted, you know, never incorporate <laughs> yeah. in Delaware. But a lot of these uh, shareholder brought plaintiff's lawsuits are thrown out yes, um, and they never get to this level. So there was some there there, even if it goes on to an appeal and, and those kinds of things. An interesting story and certainly not not expected. Nikki Haley pulling in a reported one point five million from her fundraiser yesterday here in New York. The hosts included billionaires Cliff Asnes, Ken Langone, Stan Druckenmiller, all known to the show here. He, she has at least 10 more events with mega donors over the next month, including one in Miami with the aforementioned Barry Sternlich and another right next to Donald Trump there in Palm Beach. In California, venture capital investor Tim Draper, he's going to gather the tech crowd in her honor. She has raised more than $5 million since her loss in New Hampshire. In an interview with CNBC yesterday, Citadel's Ken Griffin said he supported Haley. I have supported Nikki Haley. I think she is a tremendous candidate. And I, I've been pretty consistent. I wish on both sides we would have a candidate of a younger generation. Now, big picture, Trump's running on a record of success. His four years were really good policies for America. Donald Trump has ramped up his efforts to bring in wealthy donors. He'll be hosting a dinner at Mar-a-Lago tomorrow night. After Trump's comments that Haley donors would, quote, be permanently barred, Haley printed T-shirts with her name and barred permanently on the T-shirts. She's already sold more than 15,000 of them. We should mention that after that Griffin comment, his spokesperson announced that Griffin had given her campaign $5 million. Unclear whether that was before New Hampshire and afterward, but that was a huge gift it, from know, Ken Griffin. Traditionally, and, and you and I have covered politics for a long time, you would see the amount of money going into campaigns matter. That if you were out raising your opponent, you got a significant advantage. I'm not sure that that's the case anymore. If you look at how much money Nikki Haley was able to bring into the campaign and then failed to win Iowa, failed to win New Hampshire where she had her best shot, and we'll see what happens in North Carolina, but I'm not sure that fundraising in this case matters as much as yeah. passion and, and narrative and just and hangover. Well, Donald Trump has changed a lot of things about politics, and the whole donor dynamic is absolutely one of them. Obviously, we remember Hillary Clinton vastly outraised Trump in that election. Yeah. And I don't know that, to your point, that money is going to change the dynamics of this race. I think most people know Biden. They know Trump. They have strong opinions. I don't know that more advertising is going to change yeah. their minds. What's different about this is that normally you would see, after Haley's performance in Iowa and New Hampshire, you would see donors stop giving her money. The money would roll to the, right. to the front runner. But it's like the billionaires are yeah. burning $100 bills at the altar of Nikki Haley simply out of either anger at Donald Trump. Perhaps they think something will happen that yeah. will sort of suddenly 
make her a possible candidate. But right now, it makes no sense. She's staying in the race because she has the money. They're giving her money because she's staying in the race. So that creates this cycle where, you know, why is she running? Because she's got donors who continue to want to fund her. The other interesting thing is that uh, in the campaign contributions to Trump over the last few years, I mean, you've got now his political packs helping to fund his legal defense. And so you have to believe that anyone who's donating to Trump now not only believes in the power of using their donation to help him get reelected, but in the power of their donation to help keep him out of legal hot water. And, and his, his strength as a candidate when it comes to finances is the millions of small donors who give him a lot of money. That's another advantage that he has. Whereas relying on these mega donors, I mean, there are only so many fundraisers you can do in the Hamptons, New York, and Palm Beach. And once those guys max out, I mean, they can give to the super PACs. But that's, that's an enduring financial source for him that's a big advantage, I think, over Biden as well. Do you think that that's... Um potentially an Achilles heel, though, raising money from billionaires and being seen in New York City? Absolutely. As both, can, as both parties become more populist, you know, you don't want to be seen. And, and Trump has made a lot of this with Nikki Haley. Look, all the, all the establishment and the yeah. elite loves her. Mm. And he loves to say that. And it's true. Universal Music Group, the music label that represents stars like Taylor Swift and Drake, will cease licensing its music to TikTok. It accuses the social media platform of bullying and intimidation in its contract negotiations. The previous music licensing agreement between UMG and TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, expired yesterday. UMG took its argument public, saying in an open letter, it's pushing for appropriate compensation for artists, protection from artificial intelligence, and online safety for TikTok's users. UMG said TikTok tried to bully the label by selectively removing the music of some of its developing artists. TikTok responded, accusing the label of putting greed above the interests of their artists and songwriters. It called UMG's characterization of the negotiations a false narrative. Well, you know, like there's this back and forth about what's fair to get paid, when is your music getting used? And this is why that you see on social media, a lot of times it'll take down your content if you try to put it, your own soundtrack to it. Well, and also, you know, five years ago, I would say Universal and the music side had the upper hand. But you look at the songs that TikTok can just make or break. And you have a song from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that suddenly blows up as a number one because it's on TikTok videos. And so they are a hit maker now. And so, you know, that's, that's changed the power dynamics between these companies. It's, um, I mean, it, it is interesting in the sense that TikTok having the power, but also what are we fighting over in terms of dollar value? You know what I mean? It doesn't seem as if it's gonna be make or break financially for, for TikTok to be able to share that much ad revenue. So it's, it's kind of interesting right. because, you know, it tends to be just a trickle uh, for most artists. It, it would be problematic though, for, it's true for the emerging young artists yeah. Not to have their music on TikTok totally. where it's most widely shared. And if, and if that's the place where there's some hang up and if TikTok's taking that, you know, you can see why that would be problematic. Ask Rick, Rick Astley the power of <laughs> social media. Yeah, true. Yeah. When, when the 10 year old twins start to yeah. Rick roll their mom, <laughs> it's, it's ha for those who don't know, Rick rolling, right? It, oh, I now think he's we're got, up on it. Okay. Yeah. You've all been recorded. He hasn't, he, I mean, he hasn't recorded in decades, right? He's just kind of... How amazing is that, to come back and have that kind of reemergence? But thanks, social media. Cheese will be next. 
Next on Squawk Pod, layoffs in tech are mounting. Thousands cut from the industry's workforce. And big technology founder Alex Kantrowitz explains whether AI is at play. Google has been viewed by the tech world as a summer camp where you don't have to do much. And it might be a shock for those people within Google to go find new employment. But that being said, you know, this is a job seekers market. Plus, some folks breaking out their tiny violins for Elon Musk's now voided $56 billion compensation package. He has Tesla stock anyway, so he's fairly compensated. That's such a ridiculous argument. We'll be right back. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Next up, a big tech earnings recap. Microsoft posted its 30th earnings beat in 31 quarters. Pretty good. Key in this one, a few hints that the company is monetizing AI and that its Azure business is growing, which makes sense given Microsoft's massive stake in OpenAI. Google parent Alphabet also beat expectations, even though it missed on advertising revenues. It looks like Alphabet's cloud computing business might be recovering from the previous quarter. CIO and CFO Ruth Porat said that growth is driven by AI. Despite the beats, both of those stocks traded down after the reports. Now, just as big in the world of tech, layoffs. Thousands have been laid off in 2024 so far. One online tracker, layoffs.fyi, has its count at over 25,000 employees laid off across 98 companies. Here are the numbers we definitely know. PayPal, 2,500 people. Microsoft, 1,900 people. Alphabet, hundreds. Amazon, hundreds. Block, laying off hundreds as well, reportedly 1,000 eBay, 1,000. SAP's workforce restructuring affects 8,000 employees. Discord, the messaging app for gamers and in the crypto slash metaverse community, 17% of its workforce cut. The list keeps going on. Here's Mike Santoli with Contessa Brewer, Robert Frank, and one other special guest. Joining us now with whether AI has played a role in these cuts, Alex Kantrowitz, founder of Big Technology and a CNBC contributor. Alex, good to see you. Great to see you, too. But probably some differences in terms of what's happening at these individual companies. I mean, a PayPal stock's been under a lot of pressure. They're trying to kind of, kind of reorient the company. eBay, slowest growth. But then you have the very profitable, large winners of tech that seem to be doing this ongoing pruning. What seems to be driving that? Yeah, totally right. PayPal, that struggles. Google, why are they laying off? What I read from the call yesterday, what you heard Ruth Porat talk about, is that this is a culture thing. 
They're trying to build faster and they're find, finding levels within the companies that's just holding them back. So they need to build faster. They understand they're under threat. This AI thing is real, it's not going away and they can't have people holding them back. And so what they've been doing over the past year is finding places within the organization that they can trim so that they can get to a pace where they're shipping faster. So taking managers out and then engineers who are like skilled for a previous generation of technology, they're also leaving to make room for people who are more skilled for artificial intelligence. So making room for other human beings who are skilled in, in, in executing the AI strategies, not necessarily somehow their jobs are getting automated. Oh, definitely. This yeah. isn't like a moment where you're starting to see AI replace engineers at Google. Absolutely not. It's more about who can build the new generation of AI technology for us. Let's make room for them, give them room to run within the organization, not be held back by managers who are so skilled in the old technology but are not able to handle the new. You know, uh, there was a lot of, I mean, on both sides of what Elon Musk did with the former Twitter with action, just like eviscerating the staff and then just running the business, you know, with, with a fraction of the previous headcount. I don't think any other company looks at that and says, hey, great idea. But maybe there's a revelation that over the huge growth period, uh, and it is a time of labor scarcity and, you know, around the pandemic, that these companies just kind of added and added and added and preserved more people than, than were necessary to do the work. Yeah, I ask every tech CEO, do you, do you take inspiration for what Elon does? Yeah. And, and they'll say on the record, no, we don't. We would never want to do that. But, you know, in the group chats, they're all like, wow, that was an amazing move. We love that. How can we? <laughs> We're glad know, he did the experiment. Yeah, yeah. We didn't yeah. have to yeah. do so it. So he, yeah. he'd cut 70 or 80 percent. So right. if we cut 40, it's not that bad. That being said, he cut a lot of people in sales and they've been struggling True. to make the same revenue numbers. So I don't think any executives go on a cut the way that Elon cut, but they do see that you can cut a lot of people and still keep the business running. And the engineers that are, are getting laid off here, you mentioned that they're sort of more well-versed in the non-AI, old-school technologies, are they finding places in other companies? What's the demand for those workers? And, and, and the manager is probably even tougher, right? Yeah, absolutely. Look, if, if you are hiring in this environment, you spent the last five years in the zero interest rate world trying to poach from Google and you've been unsuccessful. Now some of those mid-level Google engineers are shaking free. This is your dream. So you just need to hold your hand up in this job environment if you're a former Google engineer and you're going to get offers. Now there are some companies that are going to be a little bit reticent because Google has been viewed by the tech world as a summer camp where you don't have to do much. And it might be a shock for those people within Google to go find new employment. But that being said, you know, this is a, a job seekers market, right? They can go and get that work. Are you seeing any impact on return to office? In other words, as the job market in tech becomes tighter, you see more people getting laid off. Is there perhaps a more imperative from these companies to come back to the office or is that not really part of it? Yeah, there are loopholes, right? If your best performers are not coming back to the office, you're not going to fire them, right? So there's going to be this like two-tier thing where like the 10x engineers don't really have to come back and then the rank and file will and there might be some tension there. Also, a lot of people are going into the office, badging in, going home, working from home. So I don't expect to see the mass cuts from return to office that a lot of people are talking That's about. Real, real, that. real quick, some of those laid off by Elon Musk, probably gleeful over the judge's decision to mm deny his compensation. What do you make of that? You know, Elon's making just way too much money, right? $50 billion is too much. Yeah, but look at the any. value he's created. That, that, that went from $60 billion in market cap to six fifty. Who's to say well, it that went to, he's paid to too much? $1.2 trillion for a minute, yeah, yeah, and now it's yeah, back to yeah. six fifty. So, look, he's definitely entitled to make some money here, yeah. right? But $50 billion is just, it, we, do we not have a problem with CEO, CEO pay in this country? That being said, 
to go this route, to go through the court, to they, they, they say, well, we didn't really understand that, that he knew the fact that they were going to make these yeah. benchmarks. Like, come yeah. on. Like, they've gone from $50 billion to $650 billion. Yeah. No one predicts that. If they predicted that, they'd be buying more. And they're now saying, okay, so he's, he has uh, Tesla stock anyway, so he's fairly compensated. <laughs> That's such a ridiculous argument. So also, interesting is- timing that right yeah. before this ruling, he said, I, I deserve more shares for this AI reason, so it's not about the money. Yeah, maybe he knew it was coming, but you're just like, you, you can't do that. From If you're a court, you can't retroactively four years of pay say, you know, he didn't earn it. Of course he earned it. And what if he had sold yeah. some of those? What if he had exercised those options? What, what well, they, that's the fascinating part. Yeah. yeah, allowed to. For not now. But, years. Yeah, yeah. but maybe this sparks the yeah. needed conversation about CEO compensation yeah. in this country. All right. Alex, great to talk to you. Thanks great a lot. Next on Squawk Pod, the first quarter for Starbucks, more a grande than a venti. Despite boycotts and a cautious Chinese consumer, Starbucks CFO Rachel Ruggieri says that opportunity awaits in all-day breakfast, for example, and that iced drinks could be heating up. We continue to see growth in cold, and that drove the highest ticket we've seen in our, 20, in our over 50-year history. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Mike Santoli, along with Contessa Brewer and Robert Frank. Joe, Becky, and Andrew are off today. Starbucks missing analyst profit and revenue estimates for its fiscal first quarter. Comp store sales were lower across the board, and the company lowered its global same-store sales outlook. However, Starbucks did reiterate its full-year earnings per share growth guidance, and it said it's very confident in its China business in the long term. Shares actually higher in the pre-market, despite the slightly lower than anticipated comp growth numbers. Uh, Shares up about 5% right now. Joining us now, Rachel Ruggieri, Starbucks CFO. And Rachel, appreciate you giving us some time this morning. Um, so talk about your, your outlook, because even as you say you're, you're confident, the company's confident that uh, comp store trends will turn more positive this year, it's also more loaded toward coming quarters. In other words, the current quarter may be not as fast to start. What, what gives you the confidence that things will move in that, that direction? Sure. Well, thank you for having me and good morning, everyone. You know, when I look at our business and we look at our outlook, it's really based on the strength that we saw in our first quarter. So our first quarter was incredibly strong globally, and that was driven by the strength that we saw across our most loyal customers around the globe. And specifically to our U.S., our U.S. business drove revenue of 9%, and that was driven by record growth amongst our most loyal members who came more frequently and they spent more money. And that was driven a lot by our holiday, which was successful. We continue to see growth in cold, and that drove the highest ticket we've seen in our, 20, in our over 50-year history. So all of that gives us a lot of confidence. We see some near-term, and I'd say transitory headwinds, which is reflective in our guidance. But importantly, we're seeing that our triple-shot strategy is unlocking efficiencies, and so it's allowing us to have the confidence in reaffirming our 15 to 20 percent earnings growth, where we'll see growth coming from both revenue as well as the efficiencies we're unlocking through our triple-shot strategy. 
So that's what gives us the confidence on our, our full guidance for the year. You mentioned that you saw good results among your most loyal customers, maybe a little more softness on more casual uh, visitors uh, to shops. Is that, is that a read through to general consumer trends? What's your interpretation of that? You know, we look at it as broadly, you know, our brand remains strong across the globe. And in the quarter, we had our most loyal customers remain loyal. We did see some softness in terms of our more occasional customers, but we have robust plans in place and we feel confident we'll be able to excuse me, navigate this dynamic environment. So when you look at all of that, the performance we have, as well as the opportunities around our ability to continue to innovate uh, new product offerings, which we spoke about yesterday. We have a lot of good innovation in the pipeline that resonates with our customers as evidenced in Q1, where we saw a record high ticket in the U.S. Our innovation drives a lot of our success, as well as our ability to continue to increase our digital capability, bringing more customers into our rewards program, and then continuing to open stores and provide channels of convenience. All of that helps to serve you know, our, our overall business and gives us a lot of confidence that despite there are some near-term headwinds, we see an ability to be, be able to continue to deliver well over the long term. Rachel, we've seen some companies coming out with um, lackluster results in China and others coming out and overperforming. When you look at China, how are you able to hold on to that premium choice that Starbucks, report, Starbucks reports to be in China for uh, takeaway coffee? Well, it really comes from in the market over 25, we've been in the market for over 25 years and we've built a very durable business. We have a strong brand. We continue to be the number one choice for our customers from away from home coffee. And what that does is that gives us a leading advantage in the premium market where we're choosing to play. And we have distinct and competitive advantages. We have over, we have 7,000 stores that are highly profitable and they're in prime locations. And we have innovation, coffee forward innovation that's resonating with customers. It's driving trial. It's driving consumption. And we're seeing it resonate with even a younger customer. And we're amplifying our innovation as well as our messages on social media. And so that's driving strength in our business. And we continue to believe that where we lead today is through the experience that our partners create for our customers. That's our differentiator. And it has worked well for us over the 25 years. And we continue to believe that we are best positioned to be able to lead in that space. You mentioned um, strength in the, the latest quarter on average ticket size uh, in, in, you know, embedded in your comp sales. How much of that is pricing? How much of that is the mix? And, and can it continue at this point if you are, you know, and, and general companies seeing a little bit more hesitance among consumers in terms of paying up? Yeah, the record ticker that ticket this quarter was driven by combination of annualization of pricing moves that were taken last year, as well as a little bit of new pricing, but also driven in it is increased beverage and food attach. So that speaks to the strength we've been able to drive through our holiday promotion, through our offerings. It resonates with customers. Cold, as an example, was 59% of our sales this quarter. Typically in Q1, cold is closer to 55%. And we specifically innovated in cold around our iced chai tea latte lattes, pumpkin, gingerbread, chai tea lattes. We continue to do incredibly well with our customers on our ice shaken espresso, so very coffee forward, but in an iced format. So as we innovate in those new areas and offerings, we believe we'll continue to drive ticket through attach, um, as well as food. Food in the quarter actually had record revenue in bakery and breakfast. And so we see a lot of opportunity with all day breakfast, with all day snacking, and leveraging our digital program to be able to incent our customers 
to come more frequently, but also to attach in certain day parts. And so there's a lot of opportunity ahead as we think about how to continue to drive our overall ticket. And in terms of overall um, store growth, I mean, am I right that uh, anticipated about 2,000 net new stores this year from uh, 38,500 or thereabouts right now? Where is Starbucks in its uh, ultimate uh, trip to its, its destiny in terms of the overall footprint? Yeah, so our, you know, what we've cited as our goal is to hit 55,000 stores, and we're well on track for that. You know, despite everything in the quarter, we had a strong quarter, but certainly there were some headwinds, and specifically in our international market. But despite that, we opened 10% of our net new store growth came in our international market. Our international market has 20,600 stores. When you exclude China, which has about 7,000 stores, you know, we're looking at nearly 14,000 stores that are outside um, of U.S. and China, and we're continuing to to grow. And then broadly, we still have a lot of opportunity in the U.S. And so when we look at our U.S. business coupled with our opportunities globally, we feel very confident about our opportunity to continue to open new stores, which really drives new occasions, but it also brings in new customers. Rachel, appreciate the update. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back here to your Squawk Pod feed tomorrow, where we'll be digesting Fed speak from the central bank's decision on interest rates today and share Jay Powell's press conference Wednesday afternoon. All the impact will be right here waiting for you. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and make sure you follow Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now so you never miss the highlights from that TV show. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.